All right, I have an exciting announcement. If you've been interested in taking my course, Overcoming Driving Anxiety, I'm offering a really special bonus. If you sign up for Overcoming Driving Anxiety this week, you'll get access to four live Q&A sessions with me. Yep, four live sessions where you can ask anything you want and we can work through any areas where you feel stuck and you're needing a bit more support. The deadline to sign up is October 28th. So if you're interested, head to the link in the show notes and I'll see you on the inside. And I thought that the unknown was like this big black abyss of fear, like this horrible, like scary place. But I I realized like, wait, I have the known and I'm not happy, which means the unknown is where possibility resides. Welcome to a Healthy Push podcast. I'm Shannon Jackson, former anxiety sufferer turned adventure mom and anxiety recovery coach. I struggled with anxiety, panic disorder, and agoraphobia for 15 years. And now I help people to push past the stuff that I used to struggle with. Each week, I'll be sharing real and honest conversations along with actionable and practical steps that you can take to help you push past your anxious thoughts, the symptoms, panic, and fears. Welcome, you're right where you're meant to be. I want to tell you about something that I recently discovered and I absolutely love, Branch Basics. I'm so excited to share this with you because Branch Basics offers non-toxic cleaning products that actually work. And this is something that I can get behind because I truly believe that toxins can negatively contribute to our physical and our mental health. And I'm a huge fan of ditching the toxins and living as naturally as possible. Because these products are non-toxic, fragrant-free, and pure, it really makes me feel safe and at peace with what I'm using inside of our home. And I use these products on everything. I'm talking countertops, laundry, floors, toilets, and even in the dishwasher. So if you're wanting to make the switch and toss the toxins, check out Branch Basics and use code AHEALTHYPUSH at checkout for 15% off, or just grab the link in the show notes. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, I have a beautiful guest with me, Jory, and she is a therapist and a relationship coach, and she does a ton of work with mindfulness, and this is huge when it comes to life in general, but of course, anxiety recovery, so I'm so excited to dig in. Welcome to the podcast, Jory. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. I just interviewed you recently on my podcast, and I loved connecting with you. So I'm certain that our conversation today is going to be just delicious and juicy and hopefully really full of a lot of wisdom and nuggets that your listeners can really enact like right now (laughs) because we all need tools, right? A hundred percent. And I love that. I love that you started off with that because I always, always try to provide like the the practical stuff, right? The like, yes. what, what can I actually do? So let's start off with, I know there's a lot of, like, I feel like mindfulness is this buzzword. There's so much to it. It's sort of hard to have a good understanding of like, what does this mean? Because I think a lot of people go straight to 
like it looks like sitting on a a pillow. My daughter would say crisscross applesauce, like, (laughs) you know, meditating in this stillness and and bliss. And I don't think it always looks like that, right? So So even with with that description, and I love that you started there, is what you described is actually meditation. And meditation is the root of a mindfulness practice. So Maybe we can even just start off by separating out the two because people often interchangeably use the words mindfulness and meditation. And while they are related, they're different practices. Yeah, I love that. Let's do it. Break it down. Let's jump right in. So I consider meditation to be a formal practice. It's something you actually do. So think of meditation as like going to the gym and doing bicep curls, Okay. Mindfulness is an informal practice, which means it's a quality of being. So mindfulness is not something you add to your to-do list. Meditation, you can add to your to-do list. Mindfulness is something that I like to say you add to your to-be list. Who do you want to be in the world? What is the quality of presence that you want to bring to each moment and how you interact with your thoughts, your emotions, the sensations in your body, the people around you, the distractions, the social media, the world? It's really about how can you respond and not react? How can you be present? How can you get out of your head and out of the spiraling thoughts and into your deeper inner wisdom in your soul and in your essence and your being and your heart center? Um, so mindfulness is an informal practice. So if meditation is like going to the gym and doing bicep curls, right? You can check that off your to-do list. Mindfulness would be, oh, look at that. I have strength to go do the things that I want to do in the world by having those stronger muscles. And actually the muscle that we're building in meditation is the muscle of our brain because our brain is simply like any other muscle in our body that we can build, which has helped mindfulness become a more secular practice over the past 40, 45 years because it didn't used to be believed that our brain could change. It used to be believed that we had this static brain, like good luck, I hope you've got a good one. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. But luckily, with the onset of uh, in neuroscience, this discovery really of what's called neuroplasticity, which is the idea that our brains can change, what we've been able to recognize is we can actually rewire new habits, new patterns, right? All these things that I know you know and what you do. But to kind of give it some context, I want to help give my little brain science 101, because this will jump right into like, why does all this matter? Because conceptually, this sounds great. Like we all know we should meditate because they say it's good for us. And, you know, just like getting good sleep and drinking water and eating healthy. Right. But like, even though we know it's good for us, we don't do it. Mm -hmm. But I think when we can have some greater context and understanding how it all goes together, it might be a little bit easier to develop an actual practice of it. So my little brain science 101. So we have at the top of our, inside our brain, top of our head, we've got our emotional brain. And then we've got our most evolved brain, our prefrontal cortex, like around our forehead. So the reciprocal relationship is that when that emotional brain fires off, so anxiety, stress, anger, depression, overwhelm, even like overtired, over hungry, like anything that's going to trigger that emotional response, it literally shuts down our prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is our executive functioning. So that is where we have reason, rationality, decision-making, clear thinking, language, communication, memory. 
So when that emotional brain fires off, it takes over and it shuts down our access to our tools. So if you've ever been angry and said something you don't mean, if you're nervous and you forget stuff, if you're stressed and you can't think straight, if you're anxious and you feel paralyzed, welcome to being human. You have a working brain. Yeah. We often think that when that happens, we have a non-working brain. But in reality, when that happens, that actually means your brain is working as it's supposed to be working. Okay. I love that. So Yeah, I love that because so many people, right? They'll be like, I'm so anxious and everything that I know goes out the window. <laughs> yes, because that's what your brain does. It's, nothing yep. is wrong with you. So we but understanding that I think is huge knowledge is power, right? Like, oh, you mean like nothing's wrong with me? Okay. So when that happens, what do I do about it? Because normally the communication between the emotional brain and prefrontal cortex, when you are not activated, is like a four-lane open highway with no traffic. When that emotional brain takes over, that four-lane open road becomes like a one-lane country road with traffic. You just can't access your tools. So you've got to be able to quiet down the emotional brain to get your executive functioning back online. It's kind of like, you know, your Wi-Fi went out, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? You've got to get your executive functioning back online. Okay, so that's the first piece I always like to share. The second one is we have a negativity bias which means that our brains have been designed to focus on the negative. This is back to evolutionary purposes for survival. If there's a bear in the cave, you're going to focus on the bear in the cave and not the 10 fish you could go catch and feed your family over here because that's not a matter of immediate survival. So as you know, your listeners know, Rick Hansen has great work around this. Um, his book called Buddha Brain combines neuroscience, psychology, and Buddhism. And he says that we are Velcro, to the negative and Teflon to the positive, right? So we are attracted to all the negative because our brains are kind of faultily designed to think that that's going to help us survive. And we let all the good slide away. Mm-hmm. Well, because of neuroplasticity, we know that we can actually rewire that habit. So to me, it all comes down to awareness that if you have awareness, you're stuck on the negative. And you can consciously choose to shift your mind's attention because mindfulness is an attention of mind practice. It's knowing where your mind is resting, asking yourself, is this serving me? And if it's not saying, okay, where can I rest my mind that would serve me? So that's where we can shift from our negativity bias to gratitude, self-compassion, loving kindness, present moment awareness, what we see with our senses, what we, you know coming back into the present moment because normally the negativity bias is our mind spiraling. Yeah. Often creating stories that don't exist, (laughs) right? Yeah. So when we can dwell on the positive, actually it's rewiring our brain to have that be a more accessible route to access more easily because of this idea that neurons that fire together wire together. So if you're focused on the negative, and you're dwelling on it. Like literally neurons are firing off, connecting with nearby neurons, strengthening that neuro, that negative thought into your neural code, becoming part of your implicit way of being. It's like you literally are what you think. But when you can shift your attention and you focus on and dwell on the good, the gratitude, the self-compassion, loving kindness, and you dwell on that, those neurons are going to wire and fire together, strengthening that into your neural code, rewiring your habits. 
making that positivity. And it's not about toxic positivity. I always like to give a little caveat because people think, well, isn't that just toxic positivity? Isn't that a problem? Yeah. It's not toxic positivity if you honor, allow, and acknowledge that what you're feeling is difficult and you give it room to exist. You're not denying, dismissing, and ignoring it. You're not like, oh, look, there's a beautiful rainbow, but I just forgot about the shit storm I went through, but there's going to be a rainbow. Like, <laughs> got to get through the shit storm first yep. and acknowledge that the rainbow will come, right? If you just focus on the rainbows and pretend that the storm never happened, that's toxic positivity. That's actually not going to be very helpful because now you're just in denial. <laughs> yeah. So the last thing that I like to help people understand is so when that emotional brain fires off, there's really two best ways to quiet it down. One is to breathe. This is why breathing is such a core practice in both meditation and mindfulness, because literally when we breathe, our diaphragm expands and we think of it only as expanding in our tummy, but it actually expands in our back as well. And it activates the vagus nerve, which travels up the spine to the brain sun and presses down on the part of our brain that got activated. Like it literally quiets down that emotional brain, the amygdala, which is the little alarm. So when you breathe, it actually quiets down the brain. We may not think it is, and the kids especially are like, breathing doesn't help. Like, you know, we're always in resistance that it's not going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And yet physiologically, it's making a difference. The second thing to help quiet down that emotional brain is the most simplest practice in the entire world, which is just to name it. And neuroscience backs this up that when you can name what you're experiencing, even as simple as saying, I'm anxious right now. Oh, wow. I'm really angry. Or, oh, I'm so stressed. Even just naming it helps separate you from the experience and it actually quiets on that emotional alarm as well. So yeah. helping understand that in meditation, people often think that when we're meditating, we're not supposed to think, we're supposed to feel all zen-like, we're supposed to feel peaceful and calm and relaxed. Yeah, that may happen. That also may be the <laughs> opposite of what happens. And, you know, I have a whole podcast episode on the myths of meditation because people think I don't have time. I'm not good at it. I get too restless. I get distracted. I have nowhere to do this. It competes with my religious beliefs, like all the things that prevent us from actually doing it. So in reality, I like to call meditation, it's simply practice for noticing whatever's coming up, thoughts, emotions, sensations, and just bringing your attention back to some focal point. Like we make it harder than it has to be. The goal is to not stop thinking. You're never going to stop thinking. The key is to stop letting the thoughts define you and the thoughts from taking over. And with more practice, you're literally building the muscle to be like, oh, look, there's a thought. Okay, let me just come back and breathe. Oh, look, there's another one. Okay, let me just come back and breathe. You know, so often in meditation lingo, you hear this monkey mind. Like we just have this mind that's all over the place. I happen to hate the phrase monkey mind because it really feels, I feel helpless and hopeless when I think of my mind as a monkey. Cause I just like envision this monkey swinging from tree, tree to tree being like this little trickster that I can't catch. Yep. But instead I like to think of my mind as more like a hyper puppy. A puppy is just going to run all over the place, but you can really train a puppy. So, you know, when the puppy starts to wander off, 
you have a leash on the puppy, that leash is your awareness to say like, oh, look, there it goes. And your breath is the key to bring it back. Oh, look, there it goes and bring it back. Like it feels much more attainable of, okay, my mind wandered off. That's fine. I have a human mind. Now let me just come back to my breath or come back to looking at this candle or touching my fingers as a focal point of attention. Like we really make it harder than it has to be. But every time we can do that, we're like doing this little mini bicep curls for our brain because then mindfulness is taking that practice off the cushion and into your everyday life. So now when you're in front of someone, when you get triggered, you're like, oh, I'm so pissed. And you're like, oh, look at that. Okay, let me just bring it back, take a deep breath so I can respond and not react in the present moment, yeah. right? So to me, mindfulness is really, again, taking meditation off the cushion and integrating those practices into your quality of presence, into your way of being. Yeah, I love that. I think like you hit on so many amazing things and, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking you you know, what you talked about with neuroplasticity, like, yes, you can retrain your brain. And I think what we're so used to is like doing, 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 and yeah. we're doing like all the the wrong things that are making things so hard. And it really doesn't have to be so hard, but it, it does feel like at times, you know, when you're doing some of this work, like what you said, it's not working you know, this doesn't feel right. I'm getting some seemingly pushback. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not able to be present. You know, my, my breath is all over the place, you know, all these things. And I think that can be really troubling when someone starts to do this work of like, Ooh, this doesn't feel good. Right. Like, so can I respond to that? Yeah. People often say to me, Jory, I have, I have no time to be mindful. I've got no time to meditate. And I'm like, we also have no time for the anxiety and anger that's in your life either, but you're also giving that a lot of time and attention. Yeah. Like you didn't give permission to all of the hardship to show up, but you're giving it a lot of space. Yeah. So that's a great kind of reminder, but also think about the process of like, whether you're trying to lose weight, you're not going to see it immediately, right? You're going to continue to do what you know you need to do. And then one day you're going to be like, oh my God, my jeans fit so much better. I didn't even, when did that happen? Mm. Right? Yeah. It's the same thing. You're not going to see an immediate, you know, shift. It's something that's going to build over time. And actually what neuroscience says in order for that neuroplasticity to happen, for our brain to actually rewire new habits is it's what's called experience dependent, meaning you actually have to do something to build the new neural pathway. So I have a couple of examples I like to give of what this actually means. So I, I don't like to run. Like I literally, I would be one of those people who would have the bumper sticker like 0.0, .0 on the back of my car because like I am not gonna go run a marathon. I honor and respect those who do. I would love to cross the finish line, but I'm not running a marathon. Same. <laughs> but I know how to run, right? I physically know what to do. But just because I know how to run and I can run doesn't mean that I'd be able to run a marathon. I would have to train my body to do something in my mind in a very specific way for something that I already know how to do. I couldn't just sit here talking to you, like visualize running and then be prepared. It's the same thing. If you want to be more mindful, more present, more aware, more conscious, less reactive, less in your head, it's a practice, which is where the meditation builds the muscle. So you've actually got to do it 
to have a different result. So one of the visuals I like to give on this is imagine there's a snowy field, okay? And you want to cross the field because you want to get to the other side. And because this field is so snowy, there's really a, there's one path across and it's a very well-established pathway. And it's so well-established, like the snow embankments are like 10 feet high on either side. It's a really well-established path. However, when you walk the path, you kind of feel like shit. And when you get to the end, you're like, I don't really want to be here, but this was the only way across the field. So I guess this is the only path. I guess it's the way I'll go. And I'll just sit here and suffer my way through this and think this is what my life is supposed to be. So mindfulness would be to get to this snowy field and see that there is this well-established path, have the awareness to say, I don't like how that makes me feel and it's not taking me where I want to go. So I'm going to start over here and start walking in a new path. Right. That's the awareness piece, because to me, mindfulness is about awareness. Yeah. The meditation basis would be I'm going to start walking a new path. And at first, that path is going to be really hard because I'm going to slosh in the snow. I'm going to get wet. It's going to be cold. I'm going to want to give up. It's going to feel like it's going to take forever. But it's, every time I approach this field, if I make a conscious choice to be in alignment with where I want to be and how I want to travel through my life, and I consciously choose this new path, Eventually, over time, that hard new path will become well-established. And eventually, as you establish that new pathway, the old one gets snowed over. So now when I approach the snowy field, this new path that's in alignment with how I want to show up in my life and quality of presence and my awareness and ability to respond and not react, that will be the obvious choice. Yeah. That's literally what's happening in our brain as we rewire new habits. Yeah, it takes action, right? And behavior change. And I love that you 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 put it I love your analogies. They're so good because they like really break it down and help you to better understand what you're saying. I think, you know, the the awareness and acknowledging that there's a choice and yes. that is sometimes really hard like cuz you don't always, it's always see hard. Yeah. Yeah. You don't always see like there's a, there's actually a choice and I don't have to just keep walking the same path. And I think oftentimes too, as our human brains function the way that they do, right, it can kind of feel more comfortable to walk that path, even though it sucks. Well, (laughs) and I think you just named exactly why we stay stuck because it's comfortable and it's familiar, even though we don't like it, we know what to do there. Yeah. And we often, we get a lot of company joining in our misery of how much this all sucks. Mm, So true. Because I mean, a lot of it is really, you know, when you break it down and look at it, because you were explaining this and I'm just thinking like, it's that certainty, right? That path to me was always certainty. Like this path might suck, you know, it, but I know it. And this is certainty to me. This is safety. This is like, this is known. And, you know, the more I walked it, the more it created that hard pathway of like, this is it. This is what we do, you know. And and I love how you mentioned too, just being able to like have the awareness and to say like, this is anxiety. I feel anxious or I feel angry, whatever it is. I never did that. And, and when I started to do that, it was just like, whoa, like – even to be able to label, you know, because it could have been any, it could have been one in a million symptoms. It could have been many different fears that were popping into my head. It was anxiety and like 
being able to just say that? It's huge. I, I got divorced about eight years ago and thank God I had a mindfulness practice to get me through that because I would have been a spiraling mess, even though I'm the one who wanted the divorce. Does it make it any less painful? And I, I can't tell you how often Shannon, I would just name it and be like, this is what fear feels like. Can I just let it be okay to sit in fear right now? Like it's uncomfortable, but you know what? Ignoring the fear was even more uncomfortable because I still felt it in my body. Yeah. Right? Because we've got thoughts, emotions, sensations, and they happen interchangeably. And so if we, you know, I, I have what I call in the work that I do with my clients, but I have what I call with my clients, the, a pattern called the cycle of reactivity. And it keeps us stuck in this spiral. And, you know, you have some trigger and we react to it. And our reactions can be denial, judging, pushing it down, fix it mode, right? I, um, or a lot of times I see a reaction being people being like, why is this happening? Like they just can't accept it yeah. or they go into externalization and judgment or shame, like all the things, right? So there's some trigger. We have a reaction. But that reaction, we have thoughts, emotions, sensations that happen almost interchangeably. A thought of, I hate this. A sensation of a pit in the stomach or tension, right? An emotion of embarrassment or shame, like I should be able to get through this easier. And as soon as we experience those thoughts, emotions, sensations, it makes that initial reaction stronger, which makes those thoughts, emotions, sensations more prevalent and more like we think it's like who we are. And we just spin in this spiral. And awareness is what's going to take us out of that. Because to me, again, mindfulness is all about being aware. So when we can get out of that spiral and come into awareness, that's how we actually respond versus the reaction. And that's where we come into our breath, acceptance. People always say to me, well, Joy, how do I accept what I don't like? Well, not accepting it doesn't make it go away. Yeah. It's not accepting. It only makes your reaction to it bigger. So when we can come into the present moment versus the future tripping or the, you know, replaying the past where we get stuck in rumination, when we can come into non-attachment to say, this is really hard. I don't know what it's going to look like. And can I let that be okay? Right. Gratitude, compassion, self-compassion, all the things that help us get through those moments. And it's not easy, but it does get easier over time. And one of the things you mentioned I want to comment on is, you know, the known feels comfortable even when it's hard. So part of these practices and these tools is a, an acknowledgement that you're open to a mindset shift, that you've got to be willing to be flexible in how you've always thought about things. And for me, like before my divorce, I had the known. I wasn't really fulfilled. I wasn't happy. I didn't feel content. I didn't feel in alignment. And I thought that the unknown was like this big black abyss of fear, like this horrible, like scary place. But I, I realized like, wait, I have the known and I'm not happy, which means the unknown is where possibility resides. Mm. It was like this mind blown moment that I had to be willing to see that as possibility and once I recognized that the known wasn't actually as beneficial as I thought, because the known didn't actually give me the comfort and security that I pretended it was, 
that the unknown is actually where my peace resided, where my fulfillment, where my alignment, where my authenticity was. And knowing that made it a lot easier to get through the hard moments to bridge from the unknown or from the known to the unknown. Oh, what you just said, like that had to have given many people this light bulb moment because that that was a huge moment for me. Like being willing to see the unknown as where possibilities lie. Yes. And insane. Like you, you know, like just saying it out loud, it gives me chills because yes. for so long it was like, no, like that that is not that's where like endless possibilities of terrible things can happen. But it's like what's happening right now, like all of this stuff is pretty freaking terrible. Like I don't I don't see how this could get any worse. And that can be really hard, of course, in your in the moment, right? It's this isn't really like you're having a panic attack and you're like, oh, like <laughs> I have this immense clarity. Cause it, you're not gonna see things clearly, obviously, when you're feeling incredibly anxious or you're having a panic attack. But you know, it's it's enlightening when you build that awareness, you know, maybe after the event happens that you're like, oh yeah, that was, that was really scary and that sucked. But like, I actually got through that and and I'm doing something that I actually want to do. Like, and I'm still living my life and I'm still going to go here and do that thing. Like, yes, there are possibilities beyond this. And like, in harnessing that, like fear that what you're feeling to help propel you forward, like it's crazy. It's crazy. And it's a practice. Yeah. It takes time to build that muscle, right? And again, you've got to do something different to build the muscle to get the different outcome. Like, again, I could sit here and be like, Shannon, I really want to have flat abs. So I'm just going to visualize me, you know, like (laughs) doing 150 pushups, you know, morning and night. But like, I could think that all I want, but not if I don't do anything about it, nothing's going to physically change. It's the same thing with our thoughts and our emotions and how we interact with them. Yeah. You oh, know, it's so, so true. When, I, when people say like, well, okay, mindfulness sounds great. Like, and, and, and just to go back one second is, you know, the way I define mindfulness is, well, I'll even go back a second further. The typical definition you hear of mindfulness, like the John Kabat-Zinn definition is paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally. So I don't know about you and I don't know about the listeners. All that sounds great until the last word, non-judgmentally, right? Because again, I don't know about you, not about the listeners, but I'm human and I can be pretty judgmental on myself and others. So to have the word non-judgmental in the very definition of a practice to me feels like we're setting ourselves up for failure. No offense, John Kabat-Zinn. I've been on retreat with him. I've worked with him many times. Like, you know, I hold him at high regard and I don't love the definition because I don't think it sets us up for success when if we all sudden feel judgmental, we're like, oh, I guess I can't be mindful then because I'm act I I feel these judgments. Yeah. Or I did it wrong, right? I did it wrong. <laughs> I'm not good at this. So I'll just go back to living my unconscious autopilot life and hope it gets better by itself, right? And So I like to define mindfulness a little bit differently. I do agree it's paying attention on purpose in the present moment, but the words that I use to define it is living with greater awareness, attention, and intention. And what do we want to be aware of? Well, we want to be aware of what's happening right now. Thoughts, emotions, sensations, right? So internal awareness, 
and external awareness. Like, how am I interacting with the world around me? What do I want to pay attention to? Well, what are my typical habits and patterns that come up as a result of what I'm aware of? Am I in reaction mode? Am I judgmental? Am I denying, dismissing? Am I on autopilot? Am I not even aware? Am I not paying attention? Am I, you know, what habits am I stuck on that I wish I could change, but I'm just unconscious about it, right? And then the last part, having intention to literally know why am I doing what I'm doing? Because, you know, we, we live on autopilot, right? We all get in our cars, we drive where we're going, we could do it with our eyes closed. We're not, we're not aware, we're not paying attention. And that's what happened to me. I woke up one day in my early 30s and I was like, how did I get here? <laughs> like, I thought I was present and aware, but here I was not really feeling consciously connected to where I was, even though I pretty much manifested everything I wanted in my life. And yet it was driven out of fear and anxiety. It wasn't driven out of true consciousness if I wasn't afraid, right? So having intention and, you know, at the root of intention is a lot of our knowing what your values are, like knowing why you're doing what you're doing when you're driven by your values, you're never going to be steered the wrong way. So like, that's how I define it. But of course, there's so many components of that, of how we be present. Well, people will be like, okay, well, Joy, I can't be present all the time. Is that possible? No, it's not possible. The key to me is to notice the moment when you're not at all present. That to me, it's almost like non-presence is more important than full presence. Mm. To be conscious of your non-presence because that's the moment when you can come back and be like, okay, do I want to stay distracted? At least just do it consciously. Yeah. So like think about lying in bed at night and you're on your phone. I like to like give myself those few moments of permission of being mindless, like detaching, doing nothing on purpose. And I'll play a game. And at first the game is like relaxing. But then there's usually this switch in which playing the game is either no longer relaxing or I'm not doing it with awareness because I now realize I'm like hitting restart because I'm now addicted. And it's not feeling in alignment with my intention of relaxing. I now feel like I'm unconsciously just like stuck. <laughs> yeah. So to me, that mindful moment is the awareness of, oh, I'm no longer doing this because I want to. I'm doing it because it's habit or because... I think it's going to provide me more relaxation where actually now my mind is like totally awakened. And now I know it's going to be harder to sleep. Like, why was I doing this? Yeah. I love how you said intention because this is something that I have found myself doing more recently is when I do something like pick up my phone, I ask myself, Shannon, what's your intention? And if I can't answer that with clarity, I'm like, put it down. Like it's so hard because you do so often run on autopilot that you just, you aren't even aware that you're doing these things. And when you slow it down and start to become more conscious and ask yourself some questions and, you know, help to just like, you know, pull at that leash a little and say, Hey, let's come back. Let's, let's, you've, you've got to, it's a practice. You've got to actually do it. It's not, and you know, I think too, you know, what we were talking about before is so important because what I hear a lot from people is, Shannon, I've tried to to do breathing. I've tried to be more present. I've tried this, that, the other thing. You know, it just doesn't work. And I love, love your analogy of the exercise because it's 
it's the same thing, but it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, we all set these intentions, right? Like I'm going to get healthier. I'm going to get fit. But then when you don't see it (laughs) instantly, Mm -hmm. it's like, how about no, I'm not so into it anymore. But if you actually stick with it and create the habit, you form the habit, it's like, whoa, like, you know, well, and, that, to, and to even help build the habit to help you understand why is this new habit important to me? What am I going to gain as a result of this? Which to me comes back to the values. Like to, for me personally, I, one of my highest values is authenticity. And I recognize when I'm not in a place where I feel I'm authentic, just how much it affects my relationships. So the more I can practice, the stronger my relationships are because I'm showing up as a full self and I'm not operating out of old narratives, out of fears, out of my old anxieties. Because I honestly, Jen, like I was handed fear and anxiety on a silver platter. And so anyone, I know your story too, right? Anyone who thinks, well, I can't change the way this is just how I was born or how I was raised. I have transgenerational trauma in my family. I call BS on that. I, to me, I just say, you know what? That's just you deciding that you're willing to give power over something that you feel powerless over. Yes. And my, my trauma was real. My family trauma was real. And so my anxiety wasn't like, what if based, it was like the worst case scenario has actually happened in my family. My mom's parents were killed in a car accident when my mom was 16. They were hit by a drunk driver and my mom was the only survivor of the accident and her parents were instantly killed. She became caretaker to her two younger brothers who were seven and 13. Her immigrant Russian grandparents moved in, but at 16, my mom really became caretaker. She got married at 19. Um, my parents got divorced when I was three, I was the youngest and my dad committed suicide when I was 10. And that's like a little bit of the trauma, but like there's, you know, it goes back generations of a lot of trauma. And so my anxieties were super real. My fear of abandonment was like real, right? That when I was in elementary school, if my mom was five minutes late, I was convinced she was dead on the side of the road because, well, that's what happened to her parents. It wasn't a what if. So to overcome, and I'm not to say that non-reality-based fears aren't real as far as our experience. I want to give that a lot of credit, but it felt harder in my mind to overcome something when I knew there was actual fact as to why this felt so scary versus just it was my mind telling me, telling me stories. Yeah. And I have literally been able to overcome this. And I remember I was on a retreat years ago, nine years ago, this past summer. And I had my single most life-defining moment on this retreat. And when I was coming home, my flight was five and a half hours delayed. And I was sitting on the tarmac for like five of those five and a half hours. And I remember thinking, oh, I should call my mom to tell her that I haven't taken off yet because she worries, of course. And she said to me, oh, she freaked out while I called because that was supposed to be in the air. But she said to me, oh my God, Jory, you must be so frustrated. And it was the most simple response because it was an obvious response to the situation. But I realized in that moment how much I had been taking on her emotions and feelings about things. 
And it was the first time I was able to kind of separate some of those narratives and be like, actually, it is a frustrating situation and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Like I had a choice in separating out my emotion from how I actually was handling it and feeling about it. Yeah. But that was, you know, I was 35 years old. And so prior to that, I really didn't have a lot of the confidence, capability, or courage to say, I can push past these things. Yeah. And, you know, you and I chatted for a few minutes before we got on the call. I've got two daughters. They're 16 and 18. And literally a week ago, I just launched both of them. My younger daughter, 16 years old, is in Israel for four months on a semester abroad program. And my 18-year-old is in, I just moved her into college. They both left within the same week. And I came home to an empty house. And to launch them both to like places so far away, of course, I'm sad and I'm grieving the loss of like their childhood being over. But my biggest and is all of my work that I've done on myself has completely shifted my next generation. Mm. because this, their ability to have the confidence, capability, and courage to trust in themselves and to follow their heart and follow their dreams and not be afraid and have the narrative or the worldview that the world is a scary place. Like literally my 16 year old is in Israel. I could never have done that. Like, this is why I practice these tools to give them the, the strength to trust in themselves and not let fears and anxieties take over. Like, this is the why for me. It's huge. Yeah. I'm like, you have me in tears because it is. You know, you do this work and you have to acknowledge why you're doing it. And we have, you know, your daughters are older. Mine's still very young. But we have very similar whys, right? Like I yes. I always say, I want my daughter to be brave. I want her to act with courage. I, I want her to go after all the things and to not be afraid. And and when she is, to acknowledge it and to say, hey, like, what do I want to do? You know, I have, a, daughter, I have a choice. My younger daughter, Cammie, I have often said a couple of things. One, ever since she was very little, she is the most certain of her sense of self of anyone I've ever met. She's always known exactly who she is. I've always said, I want to be Cammie when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) And she has one of her favorite quotes is feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm. And I like to like qualify that, like feel the fear, but do it when it feels in alignment. Don't do it if your gut's telling you not to like, don't just push past to say I overcame the fear, like still be discerning and knowing that it was a good choice. Right. But She literally, her confidence and courage has taken me all over the world. When she was 13, she was involved in an organization that supported small villages. And for before her bat mitzvah, she did a mitzvah project where they had to like get involved. Most kids are like volunteer at a soup kitchen or an animal shelter or do like a clothing drive. She insisted we go to Ecuador to the middle of the Amazon for a week. And luckily we had the resources to do that. But like, that was pushing me so far out of my comfort zone 
We were literally in the middle of the Amazon that took us seven hours to get to from the capital of Ecuador. The last three and a half hours of that bus ride was on a dirt road through villages where we ended at a river that we had a motorized canoe down to our, our eco lodge. And she was like as cool as can. <laughs> and I was having to like look at her for, okay, this could be really anxiety provoking. I'm, I mean, I was with an organization that does this. It wasn't like we were trekking on our own, but she had the confidence and courage to trust in the world and trust in herself. Yeah. It was huge. So beautiful. During COVID, she and I went and did a sunrise hike um, about an hour away from our house at the top of this big mountain. And we, we had to leave our house at two in the morning. We drive there. The parking lot was like on a winding mountain road and it's foggy and misting. And we're the only people there. It was literally like the two of us, our flashlight and the moon and the mountain. And of course, in my mind, the, 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 you know, like all the animals that were going to attack and kill us. And she was as cool as could be. And I kept yeah. having to like look to her a bit, but then being like, but I also raised her in a way to trust in this. And I can't take full credit, but I do believe this is the implication of what I have decided is a fundamental inherent value to get out of my head out of the narratives, to get really present, to get off of autopilot, to get curious, to get really compassionate, to choose gratitude, to practice loving kindness. It's all a choice. Yeah. Oh, I don't think we could end on a better note. Like this has been just amazing. And I so appreciate you coming on. So Jory, if people want to find and connect with you further, where can they find you? Yeah, definitely. First of all, thank you so much. I feel like you and I could talk for hours and hours because <laughs> we're so like-minded in the things that just light us up inside. So thank you for having me on. Yeah. The best way to find me is my name is Jory Rose, J-O-R-E-E-R-O-S-E. That's my website. At Jory Rose is my Instagram, so you can find me there. I I do coaching now. I still am a therapist, but really have transitioned my practice into coaching and really in helping women transition in how they want to show up in the world, right? Because we get really stuck. And so if this is something that interests you, I'd love for you guys to follow me on Instagram or connect with me at my website. And I also have a podcast called Journey Forward with Jory Rose. I love it. Keep doing amazing work, my friend. Uh, thank you so much. You as well. <laughs> and before I end this episode, I want to mention that I'd really appreciate it if you shared this episode or any others with somebody who you feel could benefit from what I share here. You sharing these episodes is what helps me to reach and support others who need it. And if you have an extra minute in your day today, I'd also really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. I read every single review and this too is what helps me to help more people to heal and overcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Healthy Push. If you want more, head on over to ahealthypush.com for the show notes and lots more tips, tools, and inspiration that will support your recovery. And if you're hoping for me to cover a certain topic, be sure to join my Instagram community at a healthy push and let me know in the comments what you want to hear next.